when we see the truth of impermanence, as Andrea is saying, it has an impact. We stop taking things and people and even ourselves for granted. We have the possibility of seeing the preciousness of our fleeting life. And we have the possibility, if we don't turn away, to see the beauty that's here. In the story of the Buddha, you know, the Buddha was said to have grown up as a prince, and um, his father, uh, there was a prediction when he was born that he was either going to be a great ruler or a great sage, a great holy man. And his father, who was the king, had a preference. He wanted him to take over the family business. And so he kept him in the palace and surrounded him by all beautiful things. And in particular, it's said that his father didn't want him to see uh, anything difficult or unpleasant, and especially didn't want him to see the truth of impermanence. So one of the stories says that in the nighttime, his father would send out gardeners into the garden, the royal gardens, where they would deadhead the roses. For those of you who know who are gardeners know, it means they cut off all of the roses that are beginning to wilt so that the young prince would never see life fading. But as many of you know, uh, his plans were foiled. And uh, the young prince Siddhartha, you know, kind of snuck out from behind the walls of the palace with his driver and was visited, as is described, by the four heavenly messengers. He saw old age, sickness, and death. He saw an old man, an ailing man, and a corpse. He also saw a monk walking peacefully under the tree. And in the context of of thinking of the Buddha's story as the uh, Joseph Campbell's iteration of the hero's journey, this was the call. This was the call that called the young prince forward into his spiritual journey. And in fact, for many of us, there is a call like this of some sort. That in some way we are visited by difficulty and perhaps even by the knowing of our own impermanence or perhaps being impacted by the illness or the aging or the death of someone near and dear to us. It's also possible that we can come to the practice through inspiration, as was also true for the Buddha who saw this possibility, this beautiful monk walking peacefully under the tree and had a sense of, oh, I could move toward that. But this teaching of old age, sickness, and death is very central to the Buddhist teaching and the story of awakening because it was that insight, that seeing, that being touched that caused 
the Prince Siddhartha to leave and to go and seek. It was really from that experience that he formulated a vow, which was that he vowed to pursue the path until he understood suffering and the end of suffering. And it's as a result of that that we are sitting here today, you know, being the beneficiaries of these wonderful teachings that have been passed down for thousands of years. So it's often the case when we encounter suffering, we encounter unpleasant, difficult situation, and particularly in the context of old age, sickness, and death, that uh, we might want to turn away, or as Andrea was describing, maybe we get it for a moment, but we can't really grok it exactly. It doesn't stick. But it is possible that this truth of impermanence can touch the heart, can open the door to compassion. In fact, it's described in the Brahma Viharas, the teaching of the four heavenly abodes, these boundless qualities of the heart, that the quality of karuna, of compassion, is uh, sometimes described as the natural response to the heart when the heart meets suffering. It's a beautiful definition of sometimes described as the quivering of the heart. Quivering of the heart. And in the English translation from the Latin, the word compassion actually means to suffer with. Calm is with, passion is suffering, like the passion of Christ. And yet this is so difficult for us. Because often, and in our kind of habit body, when we face suffering, if you think about it in your own experience, we often do one of two things. One is we turn away. The other is we try to fix it. So we lean away or we lean in. But how difficult is it really, we all know this, to simply be with suffering that's there. It's hard to be with suffering because it actually asks the heart to break. It asks the heart, whatever crustiness, whatever hardening there is in the heart, it asks that to soften, to open. There is in the uh, Jewish tradition uh, very particular teachings around what's described as the hardening of the heart. It's different than the hardening of the arteries. (laughs) I googled it today and, um, you know, different, you get different stuff depending on how you describe that. So in the Old Testament, there are multiple situations where um, it's described, this teaching of. Uh, the hardening of the heart. And there are two basic contexts. One 
is it's described that the hardening of the heart is a punishment from God. So it's a different tradition, right? And in this tradition, God can uh, inflict punishment. And the punishment is the hardening of the heart, which means basically it's... uh, there are a number of stories where God inflicts this punishment, and what it means is that the person becomes um, stubborn, resistant. They won't listen. They can't. They won't change their mind. They lose their flexibility and their fluidity. Sort of the opposite of the teaching last night about listening and loving, right? Won't listen, refuse to love. <laughs> That's the hardening of the heart. But there's another context that this teaching is given in which it's given as an um, exhortation, which is kind of like a do not. And so it's repeated again and again in the Old Testament, do not harden the heart. And really what's meant there is something a little bit different, that this is, this is described as an um, instruction from God who's saying, do not believe in, your, in the illusion of your self-sufficiency. And here it comes very close to a Buddhist understanding that the hardening of the heart comes when we, uh, we believe the illusion of our separate solid self. Sometimes described that believing that illusion is delusion. (laughs) So the illusion is fine. We feel separate. But when we believe it, it becomes delusion. And then it creates suffering. So when we feel that hardening of the heart, when we feel that over-leaning into a sense of self-sufficiency, This is what's meant by having a a loss of connection, a loss of heartfulness, a loss of love. We lose our connection to ourselves. We lose our connection to others. We lose our connection to the world. So um, I have a, a friend who is a, Dharma teacher, and he tells a story about going to uh, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and um, being there and all of these people praying at the wall. And he said that uh, it was there, somehow in that environment, that he felt how his own heart had hardened. And that in itself became the call for him to begin to practice. He knew at that moment that he wanted to take up a practice of meditation as a way to remove the hardening of the heart, to soften the heart. So in Buddhism, there is a a beautiful figure that represents this heart of compassion, the heart that isn't hardened, the heart that's willing to be open, to listen, to turn toward suffering. And it's described as the, the bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a, a being dedicated to the enlightenment and well-being of all beings. 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama is sometimes referred to as an um, embodiment of the Bodhisattva, of great compassion, of Lokiteshvara. So the, the, one of the names for this Bodhisattva is Avalokiteshvara, which means Avalokiteshvara. It's a beautiful word. And this literally is translated as one who hears the cries of the world. This is listening and loving. And some of you may have seen images of Avalokiteshvara. It's often depicted as a being with a hundred or fourteen or a thousand, a whole halo of arms. You may have seen this in some Buddhist paintings or statues or iconography. And in each uh, arm in the, in, at the hand, there's an image of an eye, which gets translated as hearing. So all of these hands and eyes are reaching into the world, open to listen. There's a wonderful story in which a student comes to his teacher and says, um, how does the Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, use or utilize her many uh, hands and eyes, which it's a little quixotic, right? Like, what exactly that means? And basically, the, they're asking, how does compassion function? How does compassion function? And the answer um, <laughs> is even more mysterious. It's a little bit like the Dharma is what holds this teapot together, right? So the answer, how does, how does compassion function? And the teacher says, it's just like reaching behind your head to adjust your pillow in the night. Get it? <laughs> I didn't get it at all. I understood the story. So basically what he's saying is it's a natural response. So when you're asleep at night and you are, you know, tossing and turning, you're you're responding to your own discomfort by making an adjustment to try to make yourself more comfortable. This is the natural outflowing of compassion. That even in sleep, (laughs) you know how to reach and try to make an adjustment, to be kind, to help, to relieve suffering. But it's hard for us to have this natural response. And I thought I would say a little bit about some of the variations that you may recognize in yourself that are not quite compassion. So there's the obvious opposites, you know. There's turning away, there's trying to fix. There are um, uh, three ways, though, that are more subtle that you may notice in yourself. And those are uh, sympathy, empathy, and intimacy. So sympathy is when we see suffering and we think, oh, that poor person, right? This is where we really separate ourselves from that other person. We create a gap or a space. It's over there, which is a way of saying, 
I'm not really going to let it touch me too much over here. I'm so sorry that you are having such a hard time. You can feel how there's a kind of closing. Now, so that's sympathy. Empathy is closer. The gap comes a little closer. Empathy is more like, I feel your pain. This is the Bill Clinton, right? (laughs) I feel your pain. But that there's still a separation. I feel your pain. It's still yours. And yeah, my heart is touched a little bit. I can feel it, but it's still over there. And then we come to intimacy. And that's where the gap is closed. That's where, as Andrea was saying, we recognize our pain. We recognize the pain that we all experience as human beings. We recognize this as part of our shared humanity. And this is when the heart is really touched. I remember years ago, I was, uh, I was doing hospice work. And um, there was someone who I was going to visit who was actively dying and was in quite a bit of pain. And he had a morphine drip, and he could control the drip, and so he was doing the best he could to take himself out of pain. But still, there was a lot of pain. And I remember going to visit and sitting in the room with him and at a certain point feeling like I can't stand his pain anymore and having to get up and leave the room and just feeling terrible, you know. And at some point, as I reflected on that, I realized that it wasn't his pain that sent me out of the room. It was my pain. And as I recognized that, it allowed me to connect with him in a different way, to stop feeling like, oh, it's over there, and to be able to re-enter the room and to be with him as a fellow human being, sitting with pain. And of course, they're different. And yet, there is a way in which that ability to turn toward is a way in which we can connect deeply. It's interesting that the the, um, Chinese character for intimacy is also translated as enlightenment. So it's very powerful, that closing of the gap. So some of you may have um, heard today in the afternoon while we were sitting, there was a little um, retreat going on in the small zendo. And some of you may have heard that sound, talk, 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 got faster and faster, right? So um, there's a little wooden fish called a makugyo. Literally, it's a a wooden thing, and it's shaped like a fish, or it It's not exactly shaped like a fish, but if you look at it the right way, you can tell that it looks like a fish. (laughs) And you bonk it with a little wooden bonker, and it goes talk, talk, talk. And it's used for chanting. And uh, in uh, Zen temples all around the world, there is uh, a chant that's done consistently every morning that is called uh, the Heart Sutra. 
And uh, it's not exactly, doesn't mean heart exactly in the same way that we would think of our hearts. It's, uh, it's heart as in the heart of the matter. But it also works as the heart. And uh, the teachings that the, the Heart Sutra is a short version of a much, much longer teaching that is a very deep wisdom teaching. There are teachings on the nature of emptiness called the Prajna Paramita. And uh, the chant is called the Maha Prajna Paramita Shingyo, which is the great wi- the wisdom beyond wisdom sutra. So when I was a young Zen student, we used to chant this every morning, alternate when some days we'd do it in English, and then we didn't use the little fish, and then we'd do it in Japanese. And we did it in Japanese, talk, 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 because it was syllabic in that way. And um, the chant opens, the opening lines are Avalokiteshvara, who I just was talking about. Avalokiteshvara, when deeply practicing, when practicing in deep meditation, clearly saw the truth that everything is empty. And then it goes on to describe the relationship between form and emptiness. It says form is not different than emptiness, emptiness is not different than form, and so on. It's a beautiful, deep teaching on emptiness. And I remember for me as uh, a student that my focus was always on wanting to see what Avalokiteshvara was seeing. Right? I wanted to understand the teaching of emptiness. And I spent a lot of time studying and meditating and reflecting and trying to get it. And then one day something turned for me. I had a, a moment of seeing it in a completely new way. And what I saw was that all the time I had been looking to try to see what Avalokiteshvara was seeing, and I had missed the most obvious fact, which was that it is compassion that wakes up. Compassion is what wakes up. Oh, when we see clearly the truth of suffering, the truth of impermanence, the truth of, the truth of our life, as it is unfolding, when we see these universal truths, what arises, what awakens is compassion. This is how it is that I think the Dalai Lama, who is deeply steeped in these wisdom teachings, can say something like, my religion is kindness. Because the the emptiness, the impermanence, the, all of that is it's beautiful teaching. But the point is the impact. The point is that it liberates us from this hardened heart. And as we sit here in these days, as many of you have probably felt in various ways, we begin to come in contact with all of the ways our own heart may have hardened. And most of our life, we just don't want to feel that. We do all kinds of interesting and crazy things to avoid feeling that. We stay very busy. We imbibe all kinds of substances. We fill in the blank. Whatever your 
way of choice is to not feel what's here. And it's in this kind of situation where we're willing and we have the courage to drop in and be present with what's here that we have the opportunity to allow that contact with the hardening itself to allow it to soften. And as the softening happens, those edges begin to blur. We stop feeling so separate. We start to feel a much deeper sense of connection to ourselves, to other people, to the world. This is intimacy. So as you start to have various levels of insight, personal and universal, as Andrea was pointing to, to recognize and to pay attention to the impact, to how it is that it impacts you and your relationship to yourself and to the world. So I'll close with um, a poem that describes uh, as beautifully as any poem I've ever heard this connection between impermanence and kindness, compassion. The poem is called Kindness by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. But I think as you listen, you can easily substitute the word kindness for compassion because she's really talking about that quality of a heart that arises as we turn to face difficulty and in particular as we turn to face the truth of impermanence. So here's what she says. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a wheel broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you can know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. (laughs) Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you how he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit for a few minutes. <clears throat> 